0: Welcome to Getting to the Truth in, in This Art. Uh, I, I'm Rob Lee. This is, this is my podcast, not for anyone else out there. No. Uh, so, welcome to the podcast. Um, I want to introduce my guest. Um, I, I have a writer, I have an art archivist, a purveyor, an investigator of art history and culture, contributing writer for Sugarcane Magazine, Black Art in America, Arts Black, and of course, Be More Art. I have Angela and Carol. Welcome to the podcast. Hey! Thanks for having me. I tried that three or four times before I even put the mics on. If we're being honest. Okay. Okay. It's it's always good. It's it's always good to go through someone's lesson. It's like Uh, I've had some people to say, "Yeah, I write stuff." I'm like, "Okay, (laughs) any credits?" So um, if you would, could you um, describe your work? Because I never do a good job of it because I think it's better for the the artist, the creator to really get into the nuts and bolts of what they do. So could you describe your work? Sure. So, again, thank you for having me
1: on the show. A great deal of the work that I do is as, and I consider myself an archivist, and I think I use that word lightly or broadly uh, or more dynamically, I suppose, because the original context for that word is usually someone who takes, you know, objects that are deemed as relevant to culture or to history and then is sort of placing them or preserving them in, in some sort of way. And in many ways, the work that I do is a means through which to To counter histories of exclusivity that and basically systemic racism in the ways in which black histories have been removed and purposefully omitted from historical canons and from the projects of institutions that are charged to to preserve all histories, right? History with a big H, but we know that, you know, especially for our generations, I'm a little older, that when we were in school, histories that did not focus on white subjects were inherently deemed electives, right? And meaning that they, and so if, if if Black history or histories about women or histories about queer subjects are deemed electives or indigenous folks, then that means that you have the choice to engage or not engage with those histories. And so too often, because all of us have had a choice, right, to engage or not engage, and because institutions that again are charged to have an inclusive telling of history have chosen to engage and historically have chosen largely not to engage, much of my work has been to correct correct that lack of engagement. And so I call myself an archivist because much of the writing that I do is about trying to highlight contemporary African-American artists who are older, Who have significant bodies of work, but because of that systemic omission, have been largely ignored and remain, for the most part, fairly obscure, have not been, have been maybe largely collected within communities, but have not been largely collected by major institutions. And as such, their legacy, their history, and their bodies of work may not be remembered for future generations. And so uh, another significant portion of my work is about making sure that Black memory is maintained um, as it relates to contemporary artworks and post-war artworks created by folks within the African
0: diaspora. That is exceptional work. I, I dig it. Um, I am now going to just follow everything <laughs> that comes from you because I'm, I'm like, like I... I sometimes in trying to do this, I, I find myself feeling like I need to put on a shirt and tie whenever I talk to people because <laughs> I'm trying to sound more like, yeah, man, I'm down with it. Not that I'm down on myself. It's was like, yeah, man, that sounds really interesting. And it always does. But mm-hmm. my thing is I, I always jump to pop culture really quickly. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'll sit there and I'll have conversations with my girlfriend. I was like, why hasn't this person gotten his roses? Why hasn't she gotten her roses? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's this very ranty thing, but it's always kind of right. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that you, you mentioned just early on that made me think the, the elective context, right. It, it made me think I'm eventually going to start saying dig. Right. But the elective context made me think of being at Morgan. Like uh I I was there graduated in 07. So we're I think we're in the same age group kind of. And Mm -hmm. I I remember the um African diaspora course we had and that was like my favorite course there. And I was like, can I take more of these while still I was a business major, but while still doing what I wanted to do, like for my degree, can I take Mm -hmm. more of these? Cause these courses are more interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And it was just the one. And as you said, Mm -hmm. it was an elective. And I was like, this is I, you can't cap, encapsulate this. You can't. So it's um great to hear that that's the work that you're doing and that you're spending a lot of time and focus there. So you've touched on it, but I, I'm going to be remiss if I don't ask it again, and um and maybe a little bit more in depth. Um, so your inspiration. Um, speak on that a bit, like your inspiration for getting in, into like your feel, like your, your focus area and, um, how have your personal experiences, um, influenced that, like that pursuit?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's funny because like, I have always written, right. Like started off and again, I'm old. So back in the day, poetry was kind of cool. So I, <laughs> so I grew Dang, up in right? the kind of, you know, right. <laughs> so I grew up in the kind of, you know, Love Jones era, you know, spoken word Cafe. You know, and you know when we when we engage in a more dynamic way with each other and with when and with language, but never you know never necessarily considered myself a critic or like reviews or anything like that. Like I was writing more creative you know thought pieces and maybe critical essays for myself with a cultural nuance. But uh, that informed what I went to school for, what I studied, which is uh, animation and and film. Uh, with an emphasis in like ancient studies and history, again focusing on the African diaspora and in our in our histories and our in our history of creative genius, and so much of so much of my early work is in the language of film, right? Is in the aesthetics of of film language. And I think that those images and that iconography are a language in and of of themselves. And as I started to develop those films, largely experimental early on, and then focusing more on kind of more dynamic uh, documentary, because that's what community needed and that's what I had skill sets to create, that uh, I realized again in that regard, just how vast, how much of our history has not been told, you know, just across all mediums, and really across all disciplines, and how much work has yet to be done, right, in uh, unearthing much of our histories and in telling our stories beyond uh, the transatlantic slave trade, right, or telling the stories that uh, precede the transatlantic slave trade and chattel slavery in the Americas and the Caribbean and Europe. And because so much of that history has been omitted, a lot of my early filmic Work kind of focused on again unpacking, revealing that work. As I, um, when I graduated from school and began to come back into community, they were like, "Hey, Angie, you can write, right? You write well." We would have conversations about. We would go to. I would go to different exhibitions, or I would go to different uh, performance art works and installations, and I would have conversations with friends, you know, about about the work, you know, and sometimes, you know, it'd be critical, critical responses, True. you know, per- particularly if the work, you know, engaged black aesthetics in some way or engaged performativity of black subjects, but there were no black people in the work. Right. Yes. So <laughs> a kind of, you know, so a kind of like abjection and, a, um, gross appropriation of black <laughs> culture that happens all too often. Right. I mean, even when we think about, um, some of the major commodities or the major exports of America, right? Mm-hmm. Entertainment and popular culture, as you noted earlier, is remains one of the primary exports of America. Mm-hmm. Um, but that export is black cultures, right? Like popular culture, American popular culture is primarily and predominantly black culture. Right. Yes. Um, and, but that is never contextualized in those ways. And so, um, when I would get into these conversations and I would, you know, give my, my thoughts, opinions, critiques about these things, you know, friends would say, uh, would encourage me to write these things. Why don't you, why aren't you writing this stuff? Why aren't you contributing it to publications? Why aren't you, you know? And I realized, and I was like, well, I'm, cause I'm not a critic, you know, I'm not a reviewer. Like I'm, I'm am i I'm an artist, right. I'm a, I'm a filmmaker. I write, you know, but I'm not interested in critiquing anyone else. But I realized again, the deficit of, of, that, uh, of that field and of that work in that there were, I had many contemporary friends um, who were artists, who were visual artists, who were performance artists whose work in, in, in Baltimore, um, whose work would be completely ignored by so-called critics um, and publications or if the work was covered it would be completely decontextualized meaning that many of the people would not understand you know the context for the work that founded the work which largely was steeped in black culture right and the nuances of black culture and the nuances of black history but again because black history is an elective right that people can choose to or choose not to engage Right. There are very few people outside of our communities and even within our communities who are are well versed within the nuances of black culture. And we're not able to sort of make those see those intersections between um, the the iconography or the histories uh, or the narratives or the themes um, that uh, these artists were were drawing from to inform their work, which meant that the review was deeply lacking. Right. Yeah and 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 not incredibly critical right and journalistically lazy you know for the most part Frankly. right <laughs> um when it came to a lot of black black artists reviews of black artists and so again I, I i started the writing as a means through which to kind of you know stand in the gap as it were yeah. um to uh and to rightly contextualize the works of 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 contemporary artists. And what was amazing to me at the time, cause I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll do this, I'll do this thing. I'll support folks, you know, and because I love writing and I love art, you know, so it seemed appropriate. And what amazed me about it, the deeper I got into it and, you know, the more I wrote was that for many of the artists, it was the first time that someone had critically written about their work. right for many of the others of the artists they had been written about before but it was the first time that their work had been again contextualized from a black lens that was critical um and because i have a history and i have an mfa right i have an understanding of art history i have a deep understanding of black art history in particular um so it was very rare that someone could speak to all of those nuances again, in a, in a critical review form that fully understood the work. And I, um, and so I continued in that lane, you know, up into the present largely again, because I wanted to make sure that our communities in particular, and specifically our communities in Baltimore felt seen, um, felt recognized. And again, um, because if it's not written, it's forgotten, right? If it's not written or contextualized, often it isn't considered for grants. It isn't considered for exhibitions uh, in museums. It isn't considered for collect for, for uh, private collections, right? Um, mm-hmm. To be included in a publication is a significant thing, a significant aspect for an artist. And to be to be written about in a critical way is particularly important. For contemporary Black and Brown and Indigenous artists, um, because if that writing never happens, or again, if that writing decontextualizes the work that they're creating, then it limits the opportunities that may come to them, or it limits the kind of press or the exposure that they may get f- oh. uh, for future opportunities to for their work, right? And so, um, so, so writing as I and I didn't necessarily again understand this going into it, but the more I did it, the more I understood how significant um, this this work. Is And I'm proud to say that I've, you know, over the last three or four, four or five years, I've written extensively about and covered many, many um, contemporary and emerging artists, uh, contemporary artists based who were based in Baltimore, many of whom have gone on to have really extraordinary careers and um, including like Jarrell Gibbs. I think I was one of the first to really write about his work when he was still doing uh, riffs on the Peanut series you know, uh, and, you know, had the opportunity to work right about Amy Sherald, you know, long before she, and again, she was already an established artist, but before she, uh, was commissioned to do the, uh, the Michelle Obama work and so, so many other Teresa Cormatti and so many other artists who again are, were early in their careers and have again, since gone on to do, to do other works so that, and, and I think in many ways, that is why I continue to do that work. And at this point, I'm kind of moving beyond the review landscape because, again, for me, I am a a writer and an artist as well. So it is important that I don't just stay in that particular lane because then I'm not growing as a writer um, and I'm not expanding. So my work at this point is sort of evolving into more like critical essays that are inclusive of reviews, but are not, you know, that are not succinctly categorized within the landscape of a review or of a critique of a particular artwork or a particular exhibition. Rather, it's, it's more broad to talk about sort of the social and systemic issues yeah. that are affecting us and that the work or, or several works may speak to. Um, because I think that that at this point is, is for me, but also I think contextually is what we need um, to be reading more about, right? How is the popular culture that we are consuming, how are the artworks that we are consuming? Uh, how do they speak to or relate to either broaden and or dim, right? The, our, our contemporary world, right? The the political and social landscapes that we are living in contemporarily.
0: Well, yes. And I, I have one comment on it and then it actually is a way to get to my next question. <laughs> um, so the, the comment I have, and I, I remind people all the time, um, just pretty much during COVID, I'll say that every Tom, Dick and Harry just became a podcaster. And I'm very sensitive to that field. Cause a lot of people just considered, Oh, you're just some d- dork in the basement doing a thing. It's like, no, I do this artfully. I've invested. I know how to do my stuff. And I, I take it serious. And then I look at it from a representation standpoint. I like, you know, I'll get told, we, we, me and my, uh, one of my good friends, we do a podcast called Unofficially Black, because mm-hmm. some of the stuff that we're into isn't considered black enough by, by people who look like us, you know, like, uh, oh, you're into wrestling? Ugh, black people don't like that. I was like, what are you talking about? Or in just different things in that kind of vein. And we, we did that based on literally an argument of not feeling represented. And then it's already like it exists that this idea that podcasters aren't even black to begin with. So it's like, you know, I was like, I'm damned in this place of I'm not considered even worthy of being in the field because of what I look like, but then I'm not considered black enough in this space. And and none of it bothers me as, as much, but it's just an interesting thing to observe and just kind of work within. Um, And especially doing, doing this podcast Um, in the, the people that I've, I've had on, I don't demonstratively say, Hey, it's only going to be black creators. It's only going to be these type of creators. The only real prerequisite is you have to be about Baltimore. That's literally what it is, and I find that I've been introduced to so many like dope creators, creatives of all backgrounds, and you wouldn't think that's here because Baltimore is a city that's a black city, if we, we're calling it what it is. But there is mm-hmm. two different Baltimore's, and you know, just being here never having any like idea that this is what a black creative is in baltimore or this is what a creative is in baltimore it's just more so like all right i just want to show everyone and show how broad and how unique we ha- have it here and that's all where it comes from but i think the same thing isn't always applied in depending on what you're doing as a creative definitely um so you talked about you touched on current events a little bit and kind of where you were, you were going that as far as like what we should be talking about right now and what kind of, so how, how do you stay up on current events? I want to say it's very easy to fall into the trap of some people just living on Twitter or living here. And mm, we see that that's corrupted and racially biased and all of these different things, but how do you stay, stay up to date to be informed while being able to be, because I think when you're a bit of a critic, and you have an experience in being able to critique things, you're like, that's not real. So mm-hmm. how, how do you stay up to date and informed?
1: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's interesting, right? Because again, I'm a little older and, and I'm not infatuated with social media in the ways that I think folks who were maybe born five or 10 years like, later than I was are. Um, like, I don't necessarily have to, you know, check Twitter, check Instagram every single day. I, I certainly don't post every day
0: <laughs> as, he, <laughs> as he grabs
1: his phone. Right. Uh, I certainly don't post every day. I mean, I think, um, I do, I am a nerd though. Like I, I follow a lot of listservs, right. So it's like old school, right. I get a lot of emails <laughs> with like updates I'm, sus- I'm subscribed to a lot of different places. I, I listen to NPR almost every morning, you okay. know, like I, I, um, I'm a little bit of an, of a, a nerd, uh, in regards to just like news. I'm a little addicted to to, to news, international and and local. Um, I read a lot. I read. Um, I'm a, an insatiable reader. I have a lot of books. I collect a lot of books. I have a lot of really long, beautiful conversations with elders, you know, about their thoughts and their opinions. Um, I have a lot of really beautiful, long conversations with members of my community. I have a lot of really long beautiful meandering conversations with my partner, you know, and, um, and that, you know, between all of the, and I'm a cinephile, right. So watch a lot of film. I watch a lot of short film. I'm, you know, so, and I love hip hop, you know, and I love music period. So there's a lot, I just, I like to learn. Right. And I think that when you like to learn and when you're curious, you are able to kind of negotiate, um, different landscapes, in, in a way that is not oppressive. Right. And then in a way that is not, um, that again, doesn't kind of feed into the, the addiction and nor feed into the kind of nihilism that, that social media platforms rely on Mm -hmm. and kind of require of us. Right. There's a, a deep kind of insecurity that yes. many social media platforms like rely on. Right. And mm-hmm. we know that the algorithms also speak to that insecurity. Right. So if I post a, a, a picture of words, right. Like excerpts from an essay and I say, Hey, check out this essay or check out this book. Um, the algorithm is not going to send it to all of my followers in the same way that if I posted a selfie yeah, right? um, or if I posted a picture of myself half naked, right. Like there are different, There are different beats. Right. But also there's a different kind of conditioning for us as navigators of these sites. Right. Where, um, again, what are how are we conditioned to to like certain things or to tune in or follow certain trends or to follow certain images? Right. And that's something that I'm very interested in in this moment is the ways in which that conditioning um, affects our our actions. Right. But Mm -hmm. it also affects our ability, our our connections with each other and our connections with community, right? So if we if we know that there's a kind of instant gratification in posting a selfie, right? Because I have friends who are like, you know what? I feel like shit today, or yeah. I feel like garbage today. Sorry, You're I don't good. know if here. Okay, <laughs> uh, I feel like garbage today. Um, I'm gonna post a picture of myself, yeah. right, on on Instagram, because they know that when they post that picture of themselves, you know, particularly if it's a if it's a cute picture you know, yeah. or maybe a little fleshy picture, right? They'll <laughs> Depending on how many followers they have, they're going to be guaranteed at least a hundred, maybe 200 hits, right? If they are on there more often, then it'll be three, four, five, six hundred 600 hits. If they're on there pretty consistently and you know, then they'll, it'll be thousands of hits. And there's something that feels good about like the, the hearts, right. Of strangers, right. Mm-hmm. Strangers clicking and saying, Oh yeah, you're beautiful. Oh yeah. You're gorgeous. Oh yeah. You're, you know, there's something to be said about that, but there's also something to be said about our need for that external uh, kind of gratification, to, for that external uh, validation, as it were. And I'm curious about, for our generations in particular, how that is being manipulated, right? How our need for external validation is, is being manipulated from, from politics mm-hmm. to, um, our, to our different affiliations, to our ability to have actual um, interactions with each other that are, that are impactful, right. To our ability to organize for our communities in a, in a, uh, in a way that is more than just taking a picture at a protest, right. Um, to, you know, all of these, I'm, I'm very interested in, in, in doing a lot of writing and researching about that right now, because I think that this is a, we're in a kind of new landscape, right. Like, sure. um, the ways in which we engage technology and social media, Um, have deep impacts on, on, on our political world, on our social world. Right. And um, because we know that the social, the, the personal is always political. Right. Um, And we know and have seen, right the ways in which our engagement or disengagement with these, these platforms has been used against us. Right. Um, Like the Russia hacking and the, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just so many, so many different instances. Right. We also are seeing the ways in which we are being surveilled through these, through these platforms and the ways in which we allow ourselves in many ways to be surveilled. We give up permissions, right. (laughs) We give up, Uh, ownership. We give up, (laughs) um, these things. Uh, and, and I'm curious about that, right? Like what, why, why is that? Right. So in many ways, my engagement with these platforms is, is in a more kind of curious and skeptical, um, way as well as, you know, as a professional means, but I think that I'm kind of hyper vigilant about what I do and what I do not post. Um, I don't, I don't post too much personal stuff.
0: Yeah, that's that's the thing that I've tried to get away from um, just being on there. You're absolutely right. Like, you know, some people like I was born in the 80s, mid 80s, what have you. And you always hear about that's the microwave generation. You want it immediately. You want it now. And it's like that instant gratification thing is just right there. And it's just apt for us to just gobble it up. And especially if you're trying to be an entrepreneur, if you care about whether people are consuming what you're doing as a podcaster, does someone check out the episode? Would you think? And all of this, you're engaging with people this way because you know email. People believe that email doesn't exist anymore, even though it's you need that to sign up for a lot of these things. You need to have that, or your your cell phone. And I think it, social media and social media with this last year or what have you uh, kind of show where some of these gaps are at and how we communicate and how we choose to communicate. And, you know, if you, if you were to talk to someone like, I always feel some, I w- I'm going to make it super my version of black dude. I feel some type of way about <laughs> sliding into people's DMS to be on the podcast because you people get weird about it. And it's just like, look, I'm trying to reach out to you. It's going to look weird if I contact you in a post you just did. So the direct message is the easiest thing to hit you with. But then people think, oh, because of how this was created, that, oh, that means you're, you're trying to have sex with someone, or that means you're trying to hook up with someone. No, I'm trying to send you a message that would be a private message, and I don't know if it needs to be out there. And people don't really get that. And it's like, where did that notion come from? Where did that idea come from? It's that communication is more restrictive. And as much as we try to be America here and look at other countries that, like, really demonstratively say, you're not allowed to communicate in these ways, we talk about my freedoms, but then really we are more of a finesse. We, we do it in a more finessed way. Mm-hmm. We've had a long time to come up with how we're going to do this and how we're going to finesse it. And the thing that really catches me on, on the social media side of things is if you're an entrepreneur or if you're trying to put your thing out there and just have people look at it it's an update or some change that somehow impacts a certain group more than another group. And as you talked about earlier, you can have certain images, you have a picture with words on there, you know, five likes. You have a meme or something that's, wow, problematic. Wow, 1,500 likes. And, you know, I have a few different accounts and I, I'm curious as well. And when I try to check these things out. I'm like, I don't even agree with this. I just think it's kind of funny and I'm going to post it. And I'm going to see if other people think it's funny. And it's like, nah, I read somewhere that it's only really 10% of the, the followers that you engage with. How are they considering engagement? Cause I remember years ago I had to explain this to my parents that, um, like, I don't know what kind of music you listen to. I don't know what kind of genres you're really into, but I've recently gotten into a lot more jazz. I got a lot of jazz vinyl for for the holidays or what have you. And all Charles Mangus, Charles Mangus, Charles Mangus. So some of these songs are like super long and, but they're a song, you know? And I remember years ago explaining this to my parents. I was like, you know, Apple, they define a song as like three minutes. I was like, so this Charles Mangus song is 12 minutes. That's four songs in their language. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure that social media describes an interaction as this many characters, this many emojis. Did this person like it? And is is it worthy? So they're just modifying and they're massaging what communication is and shaping it. I think that that's that's my two cents on it.
1: Yeah, I, I agree completely. And yeah, I mean, I think Mingus is such a great example of someone who understood that his role as an artist was not just, um, to create, you know, cool sounding music, right? Mm -hmm. Like he, um, his work particularly in his later, later in his career was not just about mastery, right. Of his, of his, of his skill, but also was about, um, creating works that spoke to, um, the political climate, the social climate, and the violence that was happening to—and historically, it happened to—Black folks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Mingus is so he was such a pioneer in that in that regard, and really wanted to be understood as a genius in his own right, um, not just a Black genius, right? But a genius yeah. in his own right who was very interested in black subjects, but also interested in subjects beyond, beyond his blackness or beyond the construct of race, right? Beyond the construct of caste. And there's something really, you know, powerful about that. And I think that there are many artists who, who are doing that work and taking on that vanguard as well. But then there are others who, again, for our generation are more concerned again with the instant gratification. Cause it's like, why would I use my platform? Why would I uh, jeopardize right, the platform <laughs> yeah. to speak? you know, to speak to something that has weight, you know, yeah. um, and, but I, but I do believe, and I am hopeful and have seen particularly during the pandemic that more people are willing to, um, to put themselves out there. Right. And to, uh, to stand for something, right. To use their platform, to stand for something significant. And I think we definitely need more, more of that, right. Because these tools yeah. were cre- were created, as a means through which to distract us, you know, and yes. it's our job to um, to reimagine and to utilize these tools for whatever it is that we need, right? Um, to not get caught up in in the kind of design of these tools, which is to keep us engaged, to keep us distracted, to keep us scrolling and clicking through, um, but not necessarily activating. Uh, these tools in a way that can lead to actual social or political reform or social and political change or social and political dismantling for things that cannot be uh, reformed, right. Or changed. Right. Um, And so I've seen a lot of that and I've been encouraged. I mean, a lot of most of the stuff that I follow are all people who actually stand for something, you know, Um, and and I'm curious to see how that will evolve as technology continues to develop and as new apps take over, I'm curious about this lawsuit right now with, you know, Facebook, you know, whether or not it's a monopoly and, you know, um, and how that will be countered and what, what, what social media and what platforms will be able to compete with, uh, with Facebook, if Facebook exists, you know, 10 years from now, what that iteration will be, how much of our, our sensitive information, our images, our posts, right, will be used against us, will be used to profile us. will be used to, you know, all of these things, right? Because there have already been briefs <laughs> about how much of our information is sold yeah. away uh, to advertisers and how much of our information is already gone into surveillance technology. And so these are things that we need to be very, 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 very aware of, and that we need to be okay speaking out
0: against. Um, Absolutely. Because when you, you hear these things about these different trends and so on, and if we, The the consent is and the knowledge is that I like to look at it like whenever these trends and these different things pop up, they're like five, six, maybe probably about six months behind of what black people are actually doing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we don't even do that anymore. It's like, oh, it's super successful. This trend came out of nowhere Mm -hmm. nah, we were, we were doing that in Detroit. Like, you know, like months back, we're not even doing that now. Mm -hmm. Um, I got a few more questions and I'll give you back the rest of your, your afternoons over there in sunny Cali, but, (laughs) uh, so I'll, I'll say, um, once I get a wig and a double bass, then I'll be doing this Charles Mangus biopic, look out for it, yes. look out for it. It's just me yelling at people talking about how great of a genius I am. That's, that's my goal in real life, actually. Okay. Okay. I do it from a stage regularly. Um, as,
1: as long as you do a remake of fables and fobbs, I'll, I'll fuck yes. with you forever.
0: <laughs> just changing up the lyrics every week. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's see. Um, I, obviously, I'm going to have a music question for you. And then I'm going to wrap on the Baltimore question that I have mm-hmm. for you. And then that'll be that. Uh, so I read that music and meditation are your medicine. Mm-hmm. What are three songs that are currently in your rotation? Or if you don't have like a rotation, what are the mm-hmm. three songs that you recently listened to?
1: Oh, that's hard. I listen to music all the time. Let's same. See. same. Uh, I have uh, a homeboy. <laughs> put me on to a brother named Brother I okay. who came up with a series of albums. And he has one song that has been my affirmation like every morning called Transcendental March. Sort of and traumatic. it is, <laughs> yeah. Brother I, Transcendental March. And in this song there's a poet and I haven't uh, been able to find the sister's name, but she's saying this poem, but the refrain of the poem is I am not afraid. Yeah. And she goes in, you know, and over and over again, she says, I am not afraid, you know, I'm a part of the cosmos. I'm a part of the intergalactic, I'm, you know, and she's speaking to us, right. Yeah. She's speaking specifically to black people. And it is a means through which, and the beat is just raw, you know? Mm-hmm. And so there's a kind of meditation in that beat and a meditation in that energy that just keeps you, that is so affirming and is like charging, right. To say, yeah. you know what, you are every day you were potentially going into battle, right. Every day, you know, being a black body in America is, is to be in jeopardy, right. Um, To there's the, to be in a precarious situation. There is no guarantee for the safety of your body. Um, as Tommy Heesey Coates says, right. You can have all the education in the world you can have, but you are your safety is never secured and transcendental March by brother. Ah, has been that, you know, regardless of that, I, I am not afraid, right. I will keep pushing forward. Um, there's okay. a, a another new song I've been listening to by, uh, and that's an old joint. He came out with that in the '70s, I think, '60s, '70s. Oh, um, there's a, a new joint by, uh, um, what's the sister's name? Uh, Ari Ari Lennox.
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, who
1: called "Grounded"? That has been on rotation um, as well, and where she's basically, you know, she's like you know, you you can't, the chorus is, you can't grow until you're grounded. Um, and so she's talking about, you know, put you, put some, get a few pothos plants, you yeah. know, that'll make you feel grounded, clean your <laughs> living room, you know, that'll make you feel grounded. And so that's been a really beautiful, a really beautiful song. And then there's one song by, uh, Alice Coltrane, who is like a god, goddess to me, is my guru, <laughs> um, called uh, Transcendence. And that song I probably listen to every, probably every day, multiple times a day. And uh, because it's just in the whole album, it, which is called Transcendence, is very beautiful. But that song in particular is just uh, a very beautiful meditation um, and reminder to to consistently evolve, you know, that every day is a means through which to evolve, you know, to grow, to expand, to excel, um, beyond yourself, beyond your limits, to transcend your expectations, to transcend the expectations that others have for you. Um, and that that's a choice and that you have the power to do so, um, every, every minute of every day, every second of every day.
0: I'm still on all three of those songs, by the way, just so you know. Yeah. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> okay. I, I'm here for it. I mean, I see stuff from the seventies. I'm here for it. I, I've just been listening to just a little bit of everything, but, um, yeah, I'll definitely add those to my, um, my, my, uh, Spotify liked list. Um, people give me crap. It's like, I, I went from hearing like trap music to meditation <laughs> to, is this, is this like bicurial beats? Are you, do you have problems sleeping? I was like, I do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, So the last one, I'll give you the choice here because both of them are Baltimore questions. One of them is both of them are word association. One of them is a three part and the other one is a one part. So which one do you want to do? Uh,
1: I I don't know. I'll give you the three part, whatever. (laughs)
0: Okay. Um, Okay. So under normal circumstances, um, so this is just like more so finish the sentence. So under normal circumstances in Baltimore, you would be doing what? Uh, three different things that you would like to be doing under normal circumstances. Snow COVID, everything Hmm. is kind of like simple. Okay. Uh,
1: Under normal circumstances in Baltimore, I would be, if COVID was, was not a thing. Yeah. I would, I would be living in, in museums. I would be going to galleries, (laughs) installations, uh, exhibitions, performances. Um, I would be going to live concerts. Uh, and performances (laughs) miss those and I would and I would uh, because again I'm a cinephile I would be you know in the back of a theater somewhere you know watching watching you know some independent
0: random obscure films I'm here for it. Um, uh, similarities there cuz uh I'm kind of stressing right now that um you know, I, I usually go to the Oscar Best Picture showcase every year mm. with my girlfriend. So, like okay. that was literally like our first date. She was like, "You want to be oh. here 10 hours with me?" I was like, "Sure." That's awesome. And then there was a snowstorm, so it just turned into 16 hours. Amazing. So it was uh, it was good. Um but yeah, you're 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 cool as hell. You are cool as hell to talk to. Um hey. So, um if you have anything that you want to plug, um, here's a b- moment to shamelessly plug anything your social, your even though you don't really use it, I guess uh, your website, whatever you want to plug. Um, and again, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Yeah, sure, um, and thank you again for having me. F- feel free to follow me on Instagram. I do, you know, keep up to date with it. Um, Angela underscore n underscore Carol. Um, also, feel free to hit my link tree, which has links to uh, recent articles, has links to recent conversations um, that I've done. Uh, Check out the Baltimore Museum of Art's uh, YouTube page. I just had a really beautiful conversation with my mentor and amazing contemporary artist, Valerie Maynard, um, who has a show up at the Baltimore Museum of Art called Lost and Found, Um, which uh, is a beautiful and extraordinary showcase or kind of mini retrospective of, of her work. Um, and she is uh, an elder and powerful person in our community that if you are not familiar with, please get familiar with her, her work and her legacy. She cares about us, she loves us, um, and we uh, would need to honor her, her and her flowers and, her, and the receipt of her flowers is long overdue. Um, you can see uh, virtual clips of that exhibition uh, at, at the Baltimore Museum of Art. And again, you can catch our, my conversation with her in a virtual gallery tour on the Baltimore Museum of Art's uh, YouTube page.
0: So um, again, thank you for coming on the podcast and I'll do my, uh, my sign off. Um, so for, for Angela and Carol, I'm Rob Lee and this was Getting to the Truth in His Art and I am saying there's art in and around Baltimore. You just have to look for it.